Engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Good evening. Welcome. It is nine after the hour. I'm Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Look, let's just get this out of the way first. Um, the flag code, the federal law, it actually says very specifically that if a city member of Congress dies, the flag is to be lowered to half staff on the date of death and the day after, and no more. And that is what President Trump did. He lowered the John McCain died uh, Saturday evening. Word came that he had died. The, pre- the flag at the White House was lowered to half staff. And on Sunday, all day, the flag was lowered to half staff. And it stayed lowered to half staff. And then this morning, it got raised to full staff. Um, that is the bare minimum of the law, and the president did the bare minimum of the law. Here's here's the problem with it, though. I was just trading emails with a friend. Going all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt uh, in, in the early 1900s, I mean, literally like 1901, 1902, it has been a federal tradition that if the Congress decides to lower the flags to half-staff at the Capitol— which the House and Senate, uh, they get control over the flags at the Capitol, and they request that the president do it because of the stature of the person being honored. Every single president, and really it goes back to before Lincoln, but it has become regular practice since since Teddy Roosevelt, every single president has honored the request. And I got to tell you, I, I think it really sucks the way some people have behaved in the last 72 hours that they don't like John McCain politically. So they're willing to trash him and defend the president for the president's temper tantrum. I, I, y'all, I I mean, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, golden rule here. I was a serious critic of John McCain's in his lifetime uh, we disagreed viscerally on a number of issues. I have been yelled at by John McCain. I've been called the word I can't say on radio by John McCain. Um, and the man deserves every honor. Um, he, he fundamentally deserves every honor. He was an American war hero, and it's disgusting. Uh, and I've already gotten emails from a listener today angry about people uh, doctoring John McCain's uh, war record and claiming that he wasn't really a war hero. Actually, yes, John McCain was a war hero. John McCain was a prisoner of war, and as you heard Oliver North telling Sean Hannity, stayed a prisoner of war so others could be let out. The North Vietnamese were desperate for John McCain to leave so that they could score a PR coup, and he knew it and refused to leave. And over the last uh, four or five years, people on the right, not people on the left, people on the right who don't like John McCain, have butchered his legacy and what happened to him and claimed it wasn't that bad, claimed people lied, claimed he set a fire on the USS Forrestal. Really amazing the vitriol coming at him from the right. And for the last 48 hours, people have been badgering me saying, oh, you know, he's a terrible guy. He's a traitor to the country. This man was tortured by the Vietnamese. He's a war hero. 
I don't care that you dislike him. I don't care that you dislike his politics. I didn't like his politics. The man deserves the honor. He did what very few others have done. And it's just, I think, an unforced error by the White House that they went the entire day today doing what they did. Um, and it's just, it's, it's really ridiculous. Um, so, so my buddy Fred, who's listening, he, he sent me a note. He said, I honestly doubt the president had much to say about how long to hold the flag at half staff. If anything, he might've asked how long to do it. And when told said, okay, do that. Uh, we know that's not true though, because congressional leaders are, were very upset with the president. They reached out to him on Sunday and asked for the presidential proclamation to keep the flag lowered until the date of in, interment and the white house declined to do so. Uh, we know that from congressional sources. We know that from Senate sources. We know that from House sources. We even know that from the White House staff that leaked that they wrote the statement uh, for the president uh, to praise John McCain and the president uh, personally vetoed release of that statement, opting instead to tweet condolences. None of this had to happen. None of this had to happen. Now, to the president's credit, no one in Washington today was talking about Michael Cohen. Uh, no, I don't think it was intentional. No, I, I think it was a bit of petulance. It took the um, it it took the chairman uh, of the Veterans of Foreign Wars and the Foreign Legion and several other outside veterans groups to send a letter to the White House today, along with members of the Republican Party in Congress going back to the White House today to beg the president to lower the flag. That's what happened. They had to apply pressure and beg him to do it. Now, y'all, again, I, I, I was no fan of John McCain's in life, but the man was a war hero. The man was at a stature within the Senate that very few other people were. He was the nominee of the Republican Party for president of the United States. Again, it's it's golden rule stuff. Do unto others as you'd have them do under you. I mean, the president's going to want this treatment when he dies. Uh, he, he should give it to a guy like John McCain, the, the person who was the nominee for his party only, what, eight years ago, uh, nine years ago. Now, what I do find interesting and I do think needs to be remarked upon are some of the statements that have come out from people including John Lewis. Uh, John Lewis uh, released a statement today. Uh, he put it on Twitter. So actually, I guess it was, was two nights ago now, uh, after John McCain died. Senator John McCain was a warrior for peace. He will de be deeply missed by people all around the world. That was his statement. Um, here we go. October 11th, 2008, uh, less than a month before the election, Civil rights icon John Lewis compared Senator John McCain to George Wallace in a posting to Politico's forum, The Arena, accusing McCain of fostering an atmosphere of hate and hostility like the one that led to white supremacist 1963 bombing of a church in Birmingham, Alabama. Lewis, a Democratic congressman from Georgia who's endorsed Barack Obama, pointed to, quote, the negative tone of the McCain-Palem campaign and said the senator and his running mate, Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, are sowing the seeds of hatred and division, which is what they say about every Republican and running for president ever. That is the thing that must be told to Donald Trump every day, that the moment he is gone, the next Republican to run for president is going to be declared to be worse than Donald Trump. 
Um, it, it really is striking to me to see so many people come out in the last 72 hours to praise uh, John McCain as a way to attack Donald Trump. It is possible to praise John McCain without resorting to being a jerk to either attack him or to attack the president. It is possible to just praise John McCain's record, even when you disagree with him. And so few people wanted to be an adult and do that. Um, But what is amazing to me are the people like John Lewis, who issued very nice things about John McCain, but savaged him. I mean, fostered an atmosphere of hate and compared it to the time of church bombings in Birmingham, Alabama, when John McCain ran for president in 2008, all because he was running against the Democrat. It's just, it's amazing to me the number of people who attacked McCain as a, as a racist, as a bigot, as a hater, as someone dividing the nation when he was running against their precious and now suddenly he's the greatest thing ever, unlike that awful Donald Trump. I got all sorts of reservations about Donald Trump. We will hash some of them out tonight over what happened today. But there's no need to have to use John McCain as a club with which to beat the president. He can stand for himself on his own record. And his record was that of an American hero. Um, Just shows you how people are so opportunistic in their willingness to accuse others of being haters, divisive, uh, racists, and whatnot in this country, particularly Democrats accusing Republicans. And then just a few years later, oh, no, the guy was great. Never mind what I said when he was running against my guy. Is there any reason Americans are cynical in politics? Yes, yes, there is. It's 27 after the hour. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. One of the coolest stories uh, to come out in the last 48 hours about McCain uh, is actually from Andrew Ferguson. It was written back uh, on the campaign trail in uh, December 20th, 1999, when he was running against uh, George W. Bush. Um, A Comedy Central crew led by Steve Carell trying to do ambush journalism uh, got on to the campaign bus and asked John McCain who his favorite poet was. Uh, let me let me read you this. According to the cosmology of the sophisticates at Comedy Central, politicians are not supposed to have favorite poets. McCain hesitated and then said Robert Service, I guess. So the comedians pressed as the cameras rolled and asked him to recite poetry, and McCain did citing all 14 standards of the cremation of Sam McGee. And at the end commented, the guy in the cell next to me, it was his favorite poem. He tapped it on the wall in Morse code. That's how I memorized it. After the hour, Eric Erickson here. Here's some sound. Johnny Isaacson speaking on the floor of the Senate just a short time ago. I don't know what's going to be said in the next few days about John McCain, by whomever it's going to be said. I don't know what's going to be done. But anybody who, in any way, tarnishes the reputation of John McCain deserves a whipping. Because most of the ones who would do the wrong thing about John McCain didn't have the guts to do the right thing when it was their turn. We need to remember that. So I would say to the president or the, anybody in the world, it's time to pause and say this was a great man. 
He gave everything for us. We owe him nothing less than the respect that he earned. There you go. That's Senator Johnny Isaacson just a short time ago on the floor of the United States Senate about John McCain. The phone number here, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Uh, to the phones we go, Joan and Smyrna, welcome. You're first tonight. Question is, everybody is blaming Trump for the flag not being flown and has staff. Who would actually be in charge of that? Does he really have that? Does he really control that yeah. that much? He, yeah, he actually does. Um, the The president orders the raising and lowering of the American flag on all in all territories, possessions, uh, military vessels, uh, the District of Columbia, and federal facilities around the world, including embassies, um, by proclamation. And what we know from White House staff and from House and Senate staffers is that a proclamation was prepared over the weekend uh, after it was announced that McCain had died, and the president uh, said he would not sign it. Okay, well, that wasn't very nice, was it? No, not really. Luckily, he's changed course, uh, which was the right thing to do. Thanks very much for the phone call, Joan. He, he, I mean, we, you can say that, yeah, okay, the good thing is nobody's talking about Michael Cohen today, but this, this, is, this isn't a good look for the president. It's just not. Um, he, he's, he's lost a day on defense over something that if he had just followed the golden rule, uh, wouldn't have turned out. Um, back to the phone. Steve from Marietta. Welcome. Hi, Eric. Um, this is Steve from Marietta. I heard John McCain tell a story on one of these things like this, I believe. It may have been on NPR at one time about when he was in the uh, captivity of the North Vietnamese that they would torture him daily, tie him up real tight so when he was sleeping at night. But one other one of the guards snuck in after all the other ones left and they loosened his bonds, and they would arrive the next morning and tighten them, and they did it over and over and over. But one day, you know, about a year later when McCain was being treated better, he was standing out on a Christmas morning, and uh, the guard came and stood next to him, the same one who had loosened him up, and the guard drew a cross in the sand on the, uh, on the yard mm-hmm. and then waited for a few seconds and then rubbed it out and walked away. And McCain talked about how much that touched him, and he understood where the man was coming from. And I thought that was an excellent story. And McCain said that in his own words, and I thought that was worth mentioning to you yeah, this evening. There were some fascinating stories by him, and a number of people have circulated. He wrote um, a firsthand account in U.S. News & World Report years ago while it was still in publication about his time in captivity and the beatings. It's been so unfortunate over the last few years as, as uh, political tribalism has set in that people aren't able anymore to recognize someone as a good person, um, even if you disagree with them politically. And so many people have worked to uh, revise what actually happened to John McCain, to, to downplay it, to claim that he sabotaged himself and whatnot. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really unfortunate. But the, the actual stories are just amazing of what went on, things like that that he talked about, um, things like the the prisoner next to him tapping out poems in Morse code. Just just fascinating stories. Carl, Powder Springs, you're next. Welcome. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. I just want to make a point to say that uh, I think if the majority of the population were to read into John McCain's background, 
there's a lot of people out there that wouldn't fly the flag like like you'd think he deserved. How so? And, what, uh, what what are you referencing? Well, he was he was the, he was the result and cause of 27 sailors' death on the USS Forrest. Not true. That's not true. Nope, that's not that's not true. That that's been thoroughly debunked repeatedly. I mean, from the U.S. Oh, Navy it. and on. Yes. Oh, yep. And then the other part where he was where he was captured, the North Vietnamese had taken him to uh, to Russia, where he sung like a canary to the Russians. <laughs> Oh my lord. <laughs> oh my gosh. Those people are real. We just had one. Oh my goodness gracious. Wow. This, see, these are the people that I'm talking about. The ones who are so poisoned that they've actually concocted conspiracy theories about John McCain. I, I'm I'm no Carl was Carl was not a setup. Carl Carl is an actual person who lives in Georgia and he really believes that. Uh, he, he really believes that stuff that, that he read on fringe websites um, because he, he so hates someone in politics. This is actually a, a good instructor. I'm, I'm glad Carl called. And again, w- w- this was this was not pretend, folks. That was an actual real live human being who actually really does believe that sort of stuff. Um, we, we live in a day and age where people are so poisoned in politics that they want to believe the worst about the other person because they can't, they, they can't otherwise process that I disagree with this person. Um, the only way to process that they disagree with that person is that that other person must in some way be a really awful person. And in, in John McCain's case, it's hard to combat his record as a war hero uh, when you're not, uh, unless you then decide, well, he's the one who caused the explosion on the USS Forrestal. Um, and for those who don't know, John McCain was a fighter pilot. He was on an aircraft carrier, and not his plane, but another plane discharged a live missile and caused an explosion on the deck, killing uh, lots of uh, sailors. It was not McCain's plane. McCain was not involved. He was on deck at the time, uh, which probably actually saved his life. Uh, He was never transported to the Soviet Union uh, to confess. Uh, He did sign a statement while in prison after sustained torture, talking about the dark crimes he himself had committed. Uh, and lived to regret that, actually wrote about that, that that would go to his grave in shame for having said that. But but there are people like Carl out there who the only way they can actually process and make themselves morally superior to a war hero is to convince themselves that he's not really a war hero, that he's lied about it, and then Carl can feel morally superior to someone as opposed to acknowledging, I disagree with this person, but he was still a war hero. It's kind of sad that... Some people are poisoned that way, but some people are. It is 56 after the hour. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. We do need to move on from the John McCain situation. It is interesting, though. The Senate uh, wants to consider a proposal by Chuck Schumer to rename the Senate uh, Russell Senate office building after John McCain. Uh, that would be Senator Russell from Georgia, former Georgia governor. Uh, he opposed the Civil Rights Act, among other things. Uh, Republican senators somewhat going slow on the on the issue, saying they don't want to deal with it this week. They want to honor John McCain himself and not fight over uh, this issue. We'll see. Now, when we come back, the Democrats 
have convened in Georgia. The Georgia Democrats, a fired up crowd, convinced they are going to take over the state. And what did they care about? Food deserts. Yeah, food deserts. Yeah. Gun control. Even before the Jacksonville shooting, they wanted to talk about gun control and ending the state scholarship program that sends poor kids to private schools. They want to get rid of that. And there's the new Ted Cruz pullout that shows him only one point ahead. People are freaking out. They shouldn't. I will tell you why when we come back, in addition to the latest in the Catholic Church scandal that's continuing to grow. After the hour, I'm Eric Erickson. This is the second hour, Atlanta's evening news. The phone number 404 872 wsb talk So the Democrats met this weekend in Atlanta. They are excited. They have convinced themselves there will be a blue wave in Georgia. The the, the data really doesn't say so. And, you know, can I just can I just point out one of the things we're missing? So in Texas, in Texas, there is a poll out that shows Ted Cruz with a one point lead over Beto O'Rourke. Bob O'Rourke is one point behind Ted Cruz. You can tell who the hacks are in the media by those who treated this seriously today. Uh, because this was an online poll by Emerson College, uh, does not have a good track record, and it's a registered voters. No serious thinking person should treat that poll seriously. I mean, seriously, it it just was not a not a good look for these reporters to be out trumpeting this. Or the the Beto O'Rourke stuff is nonsense too. The 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 Washington Free Beacon has a great story up on how to get a puff piece written, and it, it's all about the fawning coverage of Beto O'Rourke, which was exactly what they did to Wendy Davis. Uh, Stacey Abrams, I'm guessing, has hired some of the same PR people um, to get her fawning press. Buddy of mine in D.C. texted me today and said that uh, he goes to these meetings up there and he has to go to meetings with uh, political activists on the left. He's not of the left, but has to go to some of these meetings. And that all anybody is ever talking about is is O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams up there as if they, they, they've convinced themselves both are going to win. So what did the Democrats talk about this weekend in Atlanta? Well, uh, Stacey Abrams wants gun control in Georgia. This this came before the shooting in Jacksonville. Um, she's already calling for gun control. Uh, reasonable restrictions is the line. She also wants to get rid of the school scholarship program. This is the one that implicated uh, Casey Cakelin really was his downfall in the Clay Tippins audio. You know, the, the state allows you to contribute money to a scholarship program to send poor kids to private schools and then take a dollar-for-dollar tax credit on your taxes. It is really the only way in this state for you to direct control of your income tax um, by directing it to education, and it goes to real-world impact helping poor kids go to private schools in the state, getting them out of failing public schools. Stacey Abrams says she wants to get rid of that program altogether, not just reduce it, but get rid of it. 
um, which is really amazing. Um, and then there is the um, food desert issue. Now, I cannot remember the name of the Democrat who's running for ag commissioner um, against Gary Black, and I'm not going to look it up because I don't want to embarrass the guy by mentioning his name when he's going to get stomped at the polls. Uh, there, there's no reason to to shame the guy with his name and his number. His big issue, his big issue, is food deserts in rural areas. Food deserts. Now you're probably wondering what is a food desert? Not a food dessert, but a food desert. A food desert is the new civil right. That is that when you live too far from the grocery store, the Democrats in Georgia believe the government should spend money to build grocery stores in your area. Now, I wish I was making this up. And they don't necessarily want the government itself to build the grocery store But essentially, the Democrats in Georgia have decided that if you live too far from a grocery store, the government should take affirmative steps through its regulatory and taxing arms to incentivize someone building a grocery store near you. And the Ag Commission candidate for the Democrats is deeply concerned about people who live in rural areas of the state having to drive 45 minutes to get a gallon of milk from the grocery store. That was actually his example uh, when the Democrats met. This is how out of touch the Democrats are. Now, what do I mean by out of touch? So they, they really, they look at this issue of people living in rural areas in Georgia and they don't see choice in it. They don't see choice. Now, here is the way that the world works. There is supply and there is demand. And when there is huge demand, then the free market generates supply to help lower the demand. When there is very little demand, there's very little supply. So when you go out into rural areas of Georgia, and by rural areas, we mean not densely populated, and you find no Walmart or Ingalls or Food Depot or Publix or Food Lion or Kroger or you name it, part of it has to do with the fact that there aren't enough people out there to justify building a grocery store. And when enough people move into those areas that there is enough of a demand, typically this thing called the free market provides incentives in and of itself for someone to go build a grocery store. And everybody's happy. But when you live 45 minutes from the nearest place to buy a gallon of milk, well, some people will go buy a cow themselves. Now, you can say that that's, that's awful and, and hardship or whatnot, but, you know, I'm from rural Louisiana and literally had someone who lived down the road from us who had a cow tied to a cinder block in their front yard, and it was their milk cow. My wife was horrified the first time she saw this. But they lived 45 minutes from a grocery store. They had a cow. 
They milked the cow. They fed the cow. They took care of the cow. It was their source of milk. Now, we did not do that because there was actually a grocery store in our town where you could go buy a gallon of milk. These people live further out of town. But it's amazing what people will do when they come to terms with living in a rural area. And the fact that you've got Democrats in the state and the big issues that were raised this weekend were gun control, getting rid of poor kids going to private schools, and using the government to get people to build grocery stores in rural areas where there are, is not enough of a population to sustain the grocery store should tell you just how to out to lunch the Democrats are right now in Georgia. And that's why they're not going to win in November because they are too out to lunch. I was talking to a prominent Democrat in the state last week who is supporting Brian Kemp. Uh, he will go nameless. You would all know this person. Uh, loves Stacey Abrams. Loves Stacey Abrams. But is supporting Kemp. The reason he's supporting Kemp is because he thinks that Stacey Abrams has uh, made a tactical decision to campaign to the left to raise up a crop of progressive candidates in the state. And he is deeply convinced that if she were to do well in November, that it would incentivize further far-left candidates cropping up in Georgia. And he thinks it's bad for business. And he thinks it's bad for the Democratic Party. And in his mind, Democrats have got to go support Brian Kemp, even though they don't necessarily like him across the board, um, to make sure that Georgia doesn't have a bunch of radical leftists who start running for office, that he wants a Democratic Party in Georgia, but one that campaigns on good business sense and helping people and not wasting their time on things like getting rid of school scholarships and food deserts. I'm not actually surprised. You know, back in... The late 90s, early 2000s, you had a number of Republicans who supported uh, Roy Barnes because they thought the, the crazy winger Republicans were running too radically right and they wanted more business-friendly Republicans. And they eventually, I think, got their way to a degree. But uh, the fact that you are seeing Democrats in the state realizing that if, if the Democrats are running aggressively left— and even if they lose, they've done well enough, they're going to keep running aggressively left. And that ultimately, long term, that's going to be bad for the Democratic Party. And I think they're right um, to dedicate time on stage at your convention to using government to build grocery stores in rural areas uh, is not the wisest use of your taxpayer dollars. And yet that's what they want to do. It is 26 after the hour, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Cindy in Sandy Springs, you're up next. Welcome. Hi, Eric. I'm calling about this uh, food desert. Yes. Um, I have family that live up in North Georgia. Mm -hmm. They are good 40 minutes from Blue Ridge. They drive in once a week. They get their groceries. They do their laundry. They get gas. They do whatever business they need. And they go back to the mountains, to the cabin, once a week. Where it's quiet and, they, and the skies are dark and yeah. no neighbors. Well, you know, there's positives and negatives to everything. They know they have to do that. Uh, right. There isn't enough people in the area to even imagine someone building a store for them. Right. Uh, but it's the choice. It's yeah. a choice. Look, um, you know, growing up in, in Louisiana, um, we're out in the middle of nowhere, and it's 35, 40 minutes to go to the grocery store to, to get items. And my mom would go on Saturdays, and, and we'd make a day of it, and there mm -hmm. was no McDonald's or anything like that where we lived either. We were out in the middle of nowhere. and, yeah. and 
Yeah. You just, you did that. I know. You know, I don't understand the Democrats anymore, and I'm not a partisan person, but I, I just can't get my head around this stuff. I really can't. Yeah, everything is apparently a right now. Um, it's just, it, it really is baffling to me that this is, of all the things to be concerned about, uh, the idea of, of people living in rural areas needing the government to build them grocery stores. Well, a, a common sense. Yeah. Just pure common sense. <laughs> yes. Oh, there, there's a lot of common sense that everybody could have. Listen, Cindy, thanks very much for the for the phone call. Yeah, there's a lot of... A lot of common sense that we need out there. Um, we need some common sense when it comes to this story within the Catholic Church. We do need to discuss the story. Um, a, a former Vatican ambassador to the United States is leveling charges against the Pope. Um, and the American media response to it is as elitist and snobbish as you can possibly get. Uh, the, the way the media is handling the story is amazing. It's 39 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. News 95.5 AM 750 WSB. The phone number. Well, you know it. 404-872-0750. Y'all, the story uh, that has is shaken up the Catholic Church, it's, it's really actually is amazing. Let me give you the background here. And it's, it's been kind of interesting today. To watch, um, most of the conservatives I follow on social media have been talking about this, and everyone else has been talking about the John McCain situation. Um, Archbishop Vigano, and I may be mispronouncing his name, he was the ambassador to the United States from the Vatican. And he alleges that uh, Cardinal McCarrick, who was the Archbishop of D.C. and a kid toucher, he alleges that Pope Benedict disciplined McCarrick, prohibited from living in a seminary and not taking part in public services, and that Pope Francis, upon Benedict retiring, the first pope in 600 years to retire, uh, that upon him retiring and Francis becoming pope, Francis undid the sanctions until this blew up a couple of weeks ago that McCarrick is one of those who was uh, abusing people. Now, what's so interesting here is that uh, one of the Catholic news agencies out there has announced that they can confirm independently that Pope Benedict had imposed disciplinary measures on McCarrick and that the Secretary of State of the Vatican didn't really um, impose those sanctions as the Pope ordered. The the Pope Pope Benedict famously once said that his power stopped at his office door. 
Um, and he was widely rumored to have decided to retire. Very unusual step. 600 years this hadn't happened. He was rumored for a number of years to have retired because he could not curb the bureaucracy within the Vatican, uh, thought it needed someone younger than him to do so, and in particular, there was a persistent rumor that he felt outmaneuvered by what they refer to as the Lavender Mafia of the Vatican, which is uh, a group of gay priests who who control many powerful positions within the Vatican, uh, Benedict thought he couldn't outmaneuver them, and this McCarrick situation apparently playing a part, so he decided to retire and let a younger pope step forward. Well, here comes this uh, Archbishop uh, Carlo Maria Vigano saying that Francis was okay with these liberals. He was okay with the the gay priests doing what they were doing as long as it wasn't seen in public. And he undid what Benedict had done, much to the shame of the Vatican. Watching the media talk about this story is eye-opening. You should know that uh, the Catholic News Agency has independent confirmation of the sanctions imposed by Benedict. Um, another ambassador to the United States from the Vatican has come forward and confirmed the accusations made by Vigano. And now a number of bishops have come forward, the latest being Thomas Olmsted. He is the uh, bishop in charge of the Diocese of Phoenix, Arizona, has come forward and said that he knows this, this archbishop, that this archbishop is not a flippant person and would not have made up allegations like this. And you've got a, an archbishop in Texas. You've got another coming forward. You've got Archbishop Chaput in, in Philadelphia, who apparently the Pope attacked as being too conservative, coming forward saying this guy is credible. Uh, you've got Cardinal Burke, a uh, very powerful cardinal within the, the Vatican, coming forward saying that this guy needs to be paid attention to. And so the way the media has decided to portray this story. Well, so the New York Times really it kind of encapsulates the, the way the political elite in this country are viewing the story that they can't avoid talking about it because it is such a big story. But the way they're essentially talking about it is that, well, you can't trust these people because they don't like gay priests. Um, this is a reporter for the New York Times summarizing their story. Archbishop Vigano belongs to a camp of traditionalist Catholics, deeply critical of Pope Francis, and blames homosexuals for the child abuse crisis that has destroyed the church's standing, writes our man in the Vatican, uh, Jason Horowitz. That's essentially the New York Times' story, is that child abuse is bad, but homophobia is worse. Child abuse is bad, but we don't want to hurt the ability of gay priests in the Catholic Church to... to uh, get promoted up the ladder. I mean, you've actually got some liberal theologians within the Catholic Church coming forward and saying, hey, you know, it, maybe if we're supposed to be celibate, we're supposed to be celibate and we shouldn't be encouraging it. Because many of these allegations come forward and what Vigano has done is he's listed uh, various cardinals and bishops within the church hierarchy who not only knew this was going on, but in some cases are alleged to have participated in what was going on. I mean, it's a real exposure, but ultimately it falls on the head of, of the Pope. And the way the American media, but not just the American media now, we're seeing the British and the Irish media and, and, and other liberal media groups around the world come forward and say, you can't believe this guy because he doesn't like gay priests. I mean, that, that literally is how it's being framed by the media. 
And now you're getting more and more cardinals and archbishops and others coming forward saying, no, no, no we, we got to pay attention to this guy's allegations. You're getting independent confirmation. It sounds very much like either the retired Pope uh, Benedict spoke or someone close to him spoke to the Catholic News Agency confirming key details in the report. But the media doesn't care because the media believes that as bad as child abuse is, homophobia within the Catholic Church is worse. And our social betters and our moral elite have decided that if the Catholic Church honors its traditions, that's somehow bad. And this is another reason why I think so many people distrust the media, because they are taking a real scandal that has harmed numerous real people, and they're trying to turn it into a culture war issue. It's not the cardinals and archbishops who are coming forward saying, here's what happened, and yes, the Pope knew. They're not the ones turning this into a culture war. It's the media in the United States in particular coming forward, turning this into a culture war story, claiming it's a a civil war within the Catholic hierarchy between conservatives and liberals, as opposed to, here comes an archbishop saying, we haven't lived up to our standards and people have gotten hurt. That seems to me the way you should cover the story, unless you're trying to protect bad people. It is 53 after the hour. Y'all, I want to pass along an article to you. You can find it on my Twitter feed. Vin Sass and others have been pushing this out as well. My friend uh, David French, who writes for National Review, has a piece in The Atlantic on interracial adoption. And I I know uh, a number of you have adopted outside your race. Uh, I've uh, met a number of families of uh, listeners of this program, um, and we've got a, a large contingent in my church and a lot of churches in the Atlanta area of, of families who have gone to Africa or Asia to adopt kids. And during the Obama administration, left-wing activists decided that it was cultural appropriation, and they actually decided to use the IRS to audit families that were going overseas to adopt. And they cracked down on people taking deductions for adoptions, which are extremely expensive, even with a a tax credit for adoptions. It is extremely expensive to adopt. And you actually had people writing in the New York Times and elsewhere about uh, that essentially you had white Christians in this country using uh, minority kids from other countries as trophies by adopting them. That it was all about uh, the pride of the family to show uh, their tolerance. It's just horrific accusations by left-wing activists who were attacking Christians, for in particular, for adopting outside the race. Well, now in the present age, um, the alt-right, the white nationalists, are also now essentially making the exact same arguments that the left-wing activists were making. It really is funny how the left and the right, at at the extremes, it's just a full circle. The alt-left and the alt-right really are largely the same. The difference is that on the left, they've convinced themselves that only the right has terrible people, not not themselves. They spend a lot of time justifying their terrible people and the arguments they make. But in effect, you've got uh, the alt-right and the far-left claiming that uh, adopting outside your race is bad, uh, that it's cultural appropriation, that you're ruining these kids' lives who would otherwise be in uh, a, in a 
adoption facilities in third world countries. And so David French writes about this problem and and his pessimism, but also some hope for what can be done. And the things that have faced his family, they're horrific things. I've got a friend of mine who is adopting a second child from China and is going through very much the same thing. It used to be people were very excited for families that were adopting overseas, and now it's it's there's a lot of pessimism about it. Um, and you know, as as David points out, you know, James, the book of James, defines true religion as taking care of widows and orphans. Um, and it really is a Christian church thing to adopt outside your race. And it has been up until the rise of the alt right really a progressive thing to want to punish, penalize, and dissuade people from adopting outside their race, which is kind of funny when you think about it. It's it's the left that's trying to prevent people from adopting outside their race, but it really is. They, they've wrapped themselves up in social justice, cultural appropriation nonsense and think it's, it's horrific uh, when it's something we should be doing. So check out the David French piece. It really is worth reading. 